Turn me to the book of Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. We're going to look at the last three verses in this book. So it's right at the end, right before the Gospel of Matthew. And we turn to the New Testament. So uh, Malachi 4 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. While you're turning there, let me reiterate what Pastor Scott said about our resurrection services. Next Sunday, uh, we'll meet at 8 o'clock at the Landis' home and then at 10 o'clock here. If you have never come to the early morning service, but you've always wondered what goes on there, this is your perfect chance. Easter will never be this late in the year again in your lifetime. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was the earliest that it was in 70 years. Uh, this year, it's the latest that it will be for a long time. So uh, Don and Judy have guaranteed it's going to be 78 degrees at their house at 8 o'clock. So come, it'll be beautiful, and uh, you'll want to be here. And then, of course, we're meeting here at 10. Um, tonight, please do come to the Pine Praise Service. It starts at 6. Lots of things uh, going on. You'll enjoy that. These are great services and the dessert's not bad either. So come uh, tonight for that at 6. Uh, Drew Dyke has written a new book. It's called Generation X Christian, Why Young Adults Are Leaving the Church, Leaving the Faith, and How to Bring Them Back. Uh, you wouldn't agree with a lot of the things that he wrote in this book, uh, but he describes some patterns, some typical patterns of why or how young adults are leaving the church. Here are six patterns or six types of leavers that he identifies. There are, first of all, postmoderns. Uh, the postmoderns are young adults who are put off by the church's exclusive claims. And the church's exclusive uh, statements about morality. The church is just a too exclusive place. Then there are, secondly, the recoilers. The recoilers are those who have been hurt by the church in some way. They've been part of a nasty church split. They've seen some abuse, some hypocrisy go on the church. And they, they think that God is equally guilty of uh, the human being's frailties and sins and failings. So they leave the church and they leave God too, recoilers. Then, number three, there are modernists. These are men and women who uh, uh, adhere to science. And the Bible cannot be trusted because it's not scientific enough. And science is their authority, so they leave because the Bible can't be trusted. They're um, atheists, basically. Uh, neo-pagans, next on his list, neo-pagans leave the church to follow New Age religions like Wicca or worship, I don't know, the sun, moon, stars, and a tree. Uh, fifth, Dyke describes spiritual rebels. Spiritual rebels are people that leave the church because they don't want anybody, least of all God, telling them what to do and how to live. They can manage life on their own. They're going to do it their own way uh, and just forget about the church. And finally, there are drifters. This is the sixth group he identifies, drifters. Uh, drifters are people who don't intentionally leave the church. They just kind of float away. One Sunday they were just up too late, so they didn't, uh, the night before they didn't get up, they slept through their alarm, and they go the next week, and then they miss a couple weeks, and they're guilty, feel guilty, so they go back, and then they miss a few more, and then they just stop coming altogether. They drift away. Uh, probably as I was describing these six types of, of young adults, 
who leave the church, you thought of people. Do you know people who fit into some of those categories? A modernist or a postmodernist or a recoiler? Um, maybe a face comes to mind. I think what Dyke says in his book that is most compelling, though, is uh, the, the chief reason why young adults leave the church and the chief thing that will keep them in the church. He says that young adults leave the church primarily because they have no relationships with an adult in their congregation other than their parents. Except for their parents, there is no other adult in the church that they have any sort of significant relationship with. If you're a young adult and you have a relationship with an other adult, an older adult in the church, not one of your parents, but somebody else, you, that, that connects you to the church. You're committed and close. It keeps you close. If you don't have that sort of relationship, you drift away. I'd like you to think about that statistic or that, that observation for a moment as we come to the final three verses of the book of Malachi. Uh, we see here in Malachi 4, 4 through 6, quite obviously and quite strategically, the conclusion of the book. Um, and, and as we look at what it says today, I want to argue for you that you can tell how deeply the gospel is embedded in your life by how much you think about the generation that follows you. One of the ways that you can tell that Jesus' death and resurrection has really sunk deep into your heart is by how you think about those who are outside of your generation who are following you in the faith. Now, let's set the stage again for the book today. Uh, we're finishing Malachi, and uh, so uh, we won't probably come back to it on Sunday morning for a long time. So for the next 30 years, you're going to be on your own in reading this book. Let me review it one more time, all right? Uh, Malachi is at the end of the Old Testament, and it's uh, everything that you know about God's work with his people in the Old Testament, the people sometimes called the Hebrews, sometimes called the Israelites, sometimes called the Jews, those people... Everything you know about God's work with them is in the past. Uh, Abraham, Moses, David, Samson, uh, 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 Gideon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah. It's all in the past. Um, these uh, people who first heard these messages from Malachi, their ancestors were the ones who God rescued from Egypt and, uh, and led them through the Red Sea under Moses. Their ancestors are the ones who were led into the promised land and were ruled by kings. Their grandparents were the ones who were exiled out of the land because they disobeyed God and were taken to Babylon. And their parents, and some of them, were the ones that God brought back to the land. This, uh, uh, this uh, nation, modern-day Israel, that is so central to the story of the Bible. And they got back to the land and the people were very excited. God's bringing us back to where we came from. Whoever heard of this in history, they're so excited to come back. And life there is harder than they thought it should be. It's more challenging. It's more difficult. The prophets had promised that when they were restored to the land, great and glorious things would happen. And it's not. They're marginalized. They're poor. They're struggling. So they have decided that God doesn't really care about them. In fact, they're living with this motto, if God doesn't care about us, then we don't care about Him. And you can see that in the way that they're living. They don't really care about listening to God's Word. 
They don't really care about uh, the, the sacrifices that they offer. They're lazy and sloppy in their worship. They don't care much about God's reputation. They say it doesn't matter to follow him. They don't care really about their relationships that they have. So their marriages are marked by this unfaithfulness to God. Can you tell um, by the way you date that you're a follower of Christ? Um, you, you couldn't really with in this day, in Malachi's day. If God doesn't care about us, why should we care about him and what he says? And Malachi comes, he's a surgeon with a sharp knife to cut away the calluses that are on the hearts of these people. In the last three verses of the prophet's final shot, this is his last chance to encourage them to get back on track. And how is he going to bring this appeal to a close? This morning I want to unfold his strategy uh, this, this way. Someone once told me that if you're running a race and you want to make sure and run a race straight, you have to pick a point in the horizon and aim for that place. If you don't, uh, your legs will carry you in uh, uh, not in a straight line, in an inefficient curve. But if you focus on something ahead of you in the horizon that does not move, you'll run straight. Malachi is interested in changing their focus. In fact, he wants them to look at two things. He wants them to look again at God's Word and he wants them to look anew at God's work. That's what we're going to unfold this morning. Before I do that, though, we're going to read the text and pray. All right, look with me at Malachi 4, 4 to 6, shall we? The prophet says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Let's pray, shall we? Father, my mind this morning is uh, uh, on Luke 24, where the, the two disciples said to one another that when Jesus opened your word and spoke about your word, their hearts burned within them. Father, we are not presumptuous enough to believe that I can unfold your word like Jesus, and we're not presumptuous enough to believe that we would listen to you like disciples uh, on the day of the resurrection. But we come before you this morning, Father, if, if you will not, as we look into your word, set our hearts on fire, will you, will you at least blow on the cold embers? <laughs> Will you, will, you, will you allow sparks to come into our hearts and minds this morning as we're looking at your word? Do that for us today as, as I seek to explain what you say um, as, as these men and women in, in great faith and expectancy, they, they've come here to listen to me open your word. So would, would you reward them as they come? You say that you... Reward those who diligently seek you, and, and here they are uh, to, to seek after you with, with the Bibles open. Our hope is this morning in these moments that we have that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to judge us and, and convict us. It, it tells us where we're wrong and how to get right, and it shows us your glory. So come, 
uh, we pray, by your spirit, teach us with your word. We, your servants, have open ears and open hearts according to your kindness. So speak to us today, we pray, and together God's people said, Amen. Uh, The main command in verse 4, Malachi says, remember, uh, remember. The people are to remember the law of Moses. They're to look again at God's word. Uh, That word remember is a word that Moses uses himself in the book of Deuteronomy 13 times. Uh, it's, uh, It's actually the Hebrew word zakar. Zakar, it's the word from which we get the name Zechariah and probably the modern name Zachary. If your name uh, is Zachary or if you know somebody, it comes from this word remember. Zechariah means the, the Lord remembers or Yahweh remembers. Um, it means more than just to mentally rehearse something or to, to call it to mind. It involves action. Uh, Peter Verhoff is a South African scholar, and he writes this about this word. Listen, he says, Remember is not only to be reminded of something, but to act accordingly. To remember something is to do it, to keep it, to observe it. At the same time, to remember is not to turn away and not to forget. Malachi tells them to remember the law of Moses. He takes them back to the beginning when they were formed as a nation. When God called them out of Egypt as his own, he gave them a constitution. He gave them a national law. And and Malachi is pointing to them to God's word. And Malachi is expecting that for as many problems as these people have, for as messed up as their lives are, that God's word will be sufficient for them, that it will be enough to get them and keep them on track. I'm I'm glad verse 4 is here in the text because it is a reminder that confronts a tendency that I see in my life. Uh, maybe, Maybe it's in your life too. Um, when another of my problems comes popping up into view like a jack-in-the-box, it happens to me, you know, life will be fine, and then poof, out it comes, and there's this problem I'm confronted with, so I cram it back down, boom, out it comes again. And when it comes, I want to do something about it. So I usually start by looking for something new, something better. I want to find the latest and greatest solution to this problem that I have. I can't be alone in this tendency. I know that I'm not alone in this tendency to looking for something better, some better, some new solution. I know I'm not alone in this because I have been to the grocery store. And uh, um, it's astounding to me how often magazines that they sell have advertisements, uh, 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 headlines, telling you that they can help solve the problems, the same problems you went to the grocery store with last month. Just think about how many times good housekeeping or whatever's there has a, the, the diet solution that will finally work. Uh, and they recreate it, repackage it every month. There it is on the cover, something new. Um, I counted this week in my library and I have almost 30 shelves, uh, 30 books rather, 30 books dedicated to marriage. Uh, and I have read almost all of those books. They, they vary in quality. They vary in usefulness. And do you know what they all have in common, the ones that are deeply rooted in Scripture? They all say the exact same thing. 
Forgive each other. Be patient. Watch what you say. Love one another for Christ's sake. Work hard. They all say the same thing. They, 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 they say it differently. I'm glad they do because I'm thick enough that I need to hear it in new ways. But they are stunningly similar. Malachi expects for these people who have problems that are so deep, he, he points them back to a very old thing, a very old thing they've had in their hands for a long time. And he expects this to be sufficient. He expects this to be enough. He really expects God's word to be deep enough and to be broad enough to to speak to you about what you are experiencing and you're encountering encountering in your life. That's why we aim in our church to take God's word so seriously. We read it and we pray it and we sing it and we speak it. I hope that you can tell that every aspect of our service is in some way vitally connected to this book. And when I close this book, because I assume it's not answering the questions that I have, that jack-in-the-box that's popped up, when I assume it's not for me, the problem is not with the text, the problem is with me. See, the Bible calls me to go deeper and deeper into the text, to think about it, to focus on it, to meditate on it. What are you looking for out there? God has already given it to you. So uh, let me just make one, one suggestion for you in reading this deeper. Maybe this will help. Um, when you pick this up next time to read it, somewhere in w- what you find there, um, God will give you a command. He will tell you to do something. So find in that book somewhere where there is a command and get a sheet of paper. You read the Bible well if you have a piece of paper and a pen in your hand. Write in the center of that paper that command. What is it that God has told me to do in this command? And draw lines out from that command and to each of these lines at the end of them, write down some way in which this command takes shape in your life. Here's the command. How am I going to apply it? Where are the various ways in my life this makes sense, this works out? I'll give you an easy example here, right? The Bible says to be patient. <laughs> we pray at our house for patience daily. So um, write this down. Be patient with one another, text says. Draw your line. How do I need to be patient with my spouse? Where do I need to be patient with my kids? Where do I need to be patient with my small group? Where do I need to be patient with my coworkers? Where do I need to be patient with my neighbors? Where do I need to be patient with my dog? All right, every single place that you can think of where this command applies. The call of the Bible is to go deeper into the text. God really has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And Malachi ends his message to this messed up people by saying, look again at God's word. I think that's true, and I think that's what verse 4 of Malachi 4 4 says. And I think you should think that that's true, too. And that should make you wonder, why does Malachi continue? Right? If God's word is enough, if God's word is sufficient, if God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, why does he keep going in verses 5 and 6? Wouldn't verse 4 be a sufficient ending to the book? He says in verse 5, I'm going to send you Elijah. If we already have Moses and Moses is enough, why do we need Elijah too? 
And I think here in verses 5 and 6, Malachi tells the people and he tells uh, us through them to, number two, look anew at God's work. We're to look again at God's word and we're to look anew at God's work. See, God's gracious sending of a prophet like Elijah is necessary because of the nature of our problem. This is how broken we are. As good and as true and as rich and as useful as the Bible is, we need something more. Even our best efforts at obedience will fall short. We have a heart problem, as even the text tells us. Um, Gene Merrill was one of my professors in seminary. He wrote this. Sin has so effectively disrupted the wholeness and happiness of societal life that no amount of good intentions or merely mechanical adherence to even the gracious provision of God's Word can patch things up. Not even obeying it to the best of your ability will fix things. What is needed, he says, is a Redeemer from God mediated through a prophet Elijah. Um, Friday, well, traditionally Friday was tax day, but now we have till what? Tomorrow at midnight. You have until tomorrow at midnight to file your taxes. Um, maybe most of you have, have done that al- already. Some of you will be busy this afternoon, probably. Um, uh, 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 I used to do my taxes myself, and frankly, I kind of enjoyed doing my taxes. It's kind of like putting a puzzle together. I'm confident, I believe, maybe naively, I believe that if you sit down with a book and you go through that massive book, you can figure out how to fill out your tax forms. You can put the puzzle together. And I, I actually kind of enjoyed uh, doing it. But keeping on track with God's Word is not like doing your taxes. It's not enough to follow the rules to fix the things that are broken. They are that broken. Now, the text here is very thick here, verses 5 and 6, so we're going to walk through it uh, carefully and slowly here. Look, it says, God, See, I will send you, verse 5, the prophet Elijah. Why Elijah and who is Elijah and why does he matter to Malachi? Uh, Well, Elijah, actually the prophet, has a number of connections with the book of uh, Malachi. Uh, Elijah received a message from God at Horeb, just like Moses did. Elijah preached during a time of great spiritual apathy, just like these people were encountering. Elijah, when he prophesied, he spoke to a king whose name was Ahab, whose heart was being taken away from God by his foreign wife that he married named Jezebel. And and Ahab was leading people and worshiping a foreign god. That's a major warning in chapter 2. So Elijah connects with Malachi in several ways. Elijah also, if you remember his story, never died. Remember the chariots of fire took um, Elijah and Eric Little to heaven? And... um, uh, uh, so he never died. So the people believed that Elijah was still alive and could come back and, and still serve. Um, this is, this is a, a premise that's actually very deeply rooted in the Jewish psyche. So much so that when John the Baptist and Jesus came, one of the questions they were both asked is, Are you Elijah? Are you Elijah who's to come? They believed what Malachi wrote here. Elijah's going to come back. And we know from the Gospels that neither Jesus nor John the Baptist were literally Elijah, but this promise was fulfilled in John the Baptist. Um, 
Keep your finger in Malachi 4 and turn me over to the Gospel of Luke. I want you to turn two books to the right, if you would. Right after, uh, three books, excuse me. Right after Malachi, you'll find Matthew, then Mark, then Luke. And I want to land in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is a story of a, prof, a priest by the name of Zechariah. There it is. God remembers. Zechariah, in Luke chapter 1, he is in the temple and he has been praying for a, a child. He and his wife have not had children, and Zechariah is praying, praying, God, please give us a son. And in Luke chapter 1, an angel appears to him and says, Zechariah, good news, you're going to have a son. And look at what he says about him in verse 17. His son. Uh, Let's start in verse 16, actually. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. Verse 17. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist, later Jesus said the same thing, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this prophecy of the Elijah to come. John the Baptist dressed like Elijah, and Elijah dressed distinctively, Uh, uh, John the Baptist dressed like Elijah, and he, more importantly, spoke like Elijah. In anticipation of the day of the Lord that is coming, Elijah's going to come uh, before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. So we believe there's a time coming when Jesus himself will return to earth and it will be a great, great day and it will be a dreadful day. It will be a dreadful day because Jesus will return as the conquering king of the nations. Before he comes, Elijah came on a mercy mission to rescue people, to get people ready. The text tells us that what he's going to do, he's going to do heart work. He will, verse 6, turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. See, the problem that these Jews have and the problem that I have and that you have too is that, that, that I am broken beyond just my actions The problem that we have, that we share before holy God, is more significant than just what you do. It's more than just about obeying God's Word. If you could pick up this book, and you could write down every command in it, and you could obey them perfectly, which you can't, you still would be broken because you wouldn't want to obey what's written in this book. The problem is not just what I do, the problem is what I want You need heart work. You need God to do something in your heart with your desires. Malachi is speaking here uh, uh, beyond your will, what you do on the outside. He's speaking about your desires, what you want, what you wish for, what you long for. See what Paul said in Romans 3.23, he said, We all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of God's standards. Not just in our behavior, the things we do, but in our desires, the things that we want. Um, I, I like to read the Sunday newspaper. I love to read the Sunday newspaper. It usually takes me all week to read the Sunday newspaper. On Thursday this week I was reading, and Jenna said to me, That says Sunday news. Why are you reading it today? 
<laughs> I've discovered if you wait until read the first page until Thursday, almost all the problems in the first three pages have already taken care of themselves. You don't need to read it. So, uh, but it takes me all week to read the Sunday news. My favorite way to read the Sunday news is uh, in a recliner on Sunday afternoon, usually while I'm falling asleep. Uh, this is just one of the signs that I am getting old, right? Can Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy be much farther behind? So anyway, some of you are saying, what? It's true. I said it, okay? It's true. Um, sometimes about 9.15 on Sunday morning, uh, I, I pass my newspaper as I walk to church. It's sitting on my sidewalk. It's already been delivered. And, and I'm on my way to church. There's a newspaper. And sometimes when I pass it, I think, Boy, I'd really love that newspaper right now. I'd really love to be sitting in my recliner right now instead of, instead of going to worship. Now, something is wrong with me if that's true. If I'd rather spend time with Mother Gruss and Grimm and Charles Krodhammer than, people, than God's people, something is wrong with me. My desires are out of alignment. My affections. How do you change your desires, what you love, what you long for? It's God's work. God does that. He's going to send a prophet who's going to do that work, Malachi says. Now, we'll talk about that more in a minute, but... I want to talk specifically about what this work he's going to do is. He says he's going to do heart work, and here's what the heart work is. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. This is the broad statement, and, and I think we can consider it from at least three different angles. The New Testament does. Um, so here are three directions that the heart, God's heart work is going to take uh, shape in his people. Um, God's heart work, first of all, is multi-generational. It's multi-generational. He's addressing here fathers and their children, members of, of two different generations, old men and young men, old women and young women. Um, see, God's work is not limited to your generation or people your age. It transcends your generation and your age. In fact, God wants to transform every person that is here this morning, whether they look like you or not, whether their hair is the same color as yours or not, whether their face is wrinkled or not. God wants to work in your life to transform every person uh, sitting here this morning. Even as, as you sit next to them, God wants to change them. Um, God's heart work extends multi-generationally. Fathers, children, uh, grandfathers, grandsons, grandmothers, granddaughters. It's that broad. Notice, so secondly, I think that this heart work is transgenerational work. I don't know if transgenerational is even a word. My word processor gave me the little red squiggly, so I'm not sure it's a word, but I'm going with it, all right? It's transgenerational. Here's what I mean. If you think about these people as a nation, um, their fathers were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they were, even though they lived hundreds of years later, children of them. We talk this way, don't we? We talk about our founding fathers. And sometimes if you watch um, news or you hear people say, would Thomas Jefferson, our founding father, be pleased with what he sees today in the United States? They ask that question. 
Well, you can ask the same question. Would Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, would he be pleased with how the people were living today with these children of his? Or would these kids want to claim Abraham as their faith father? It's, it's transgenerational work. God, God's heart work ties people back into their roots deeply. We find a reminder again as a church that we are rooted and connected to men and women who've gone before us and who walked with Christ hundreds of years before we were born. Uh, we sing the song, The Church is One Foundation. Do you ever remember we sing that hymn every now and then? The last verse goes, uh, Yet she, that's the church, on earth hath union with God the three in one. Speaking of the church's connection to the God, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The next line goes, And mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. <laughs> mystic sweet communion. What in the world is mystic sweet communion? Mystic Sweet Communion is speaking of the fact that though uh, they lived hundreds of years ago, they are followers of Christ, and we agree with them. They're dead, their rest is one, they're in heaven, but we agree with them about who Jesus is and about the sufficiency and the glory of God's Word and the wonder of the Gospel. And, 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 and Malachi is saying, God wants to transform your heart so that Athanasius and John Wesley and Charles Spurgeon will look at our church and say, those are my people right there. That's the transgenerational work that God does. But there's even more something, a third aspect of heart work that I think is very important here, implicit in the text, and it's intragenerational work. Multi-generational, transgenerational, now intragenerational work. You cannot escape the fact here that God is proposing to uh, the Jews that through Elijah the prophet, he's going to transform their homes your home. This is the heart work that God does. He wants to change your family, the people that you came to church with this morning. Now, why does God care about your family? <laughs> Joyce Baldwin, who's another commentator in Malachi, wrote that your home is a world in miniature. It's the first and the most significant place where you either testify to or deny your faith. If you're not real at home, you're not real anywhere. You're not real at all. Uh, Jesus said the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Who is closer to you as a neighbor than the person who sleeps in the room next to you? Huh? Your, your family, your, your home. If the gospel is really changing you, if your relationship with God is really new, is really different, it will show up first and foremost in how you treat the people closest to you. Uh, this week, the Guardian newspaper in London uh, published an article about recent efforts of the German government to change, uh, to encourage people in Germany to have children. Um, the birth rate in Germany is so low that some government ministers have estimated that within 300 years there will be no Germans left, except in Lancaster County. So um, they're concerned about this. The German government is concerned about this. In fact, the headline of the article, listen to this, it was called, Working Like Crazy and Babies Prove an Unachievable Mix. Who is that news to? Uh, working like crazy and babies prove an unachievable mix. 
Uh, that does not surprise anybody but German government bureaucrats. But this is what the government officials tried to do. They tried to build into their laws all kinds of economic incentives for people to have babies. They extended maternity leave. They increased maternity pay. They... Uh, increased uh, child care, government-provided child care. If you qualify in Germany, you can have some government minister take care of your kids for ten and a half hours a day while you're at work. Then they did all these measures to try to increase the birth rate in Germany, and the Germans have not had more children. The problem is, this reveals, rather, that the problem is not chiefly economic, it's a heart issue. Uh, you know this. I don't need to tell you this. Parenting is hard work. It is without a doubt the hardest thing that I do. I learned about 32 years ago to brush my teeth. A lot of, I have decades of experience in brushing my teeth. I never imagined that I would be expected to brush someone else's teeth. I learned my multiplication tables third grade. I learned my multiplication tables. 2 times 3 is 6, 2 times 4 is 8, 2 times 5 is 10, 2 times 6 is 12. I have this awful feeling that next year in third grade, I'm going to have to learn them all over again or review them incessantly. Uh, I've done science projects. There's more in my future. Um, I learned how to drive. I'm going to have to go through that experience again. Um, I planned a wedding once. Actually, I helped plan a wedding once. I'm going to have to do it again, and I'm going to have to pay for them this time. <laughs> uh, parenting is, is hard work. It's hard, and it's really attractive to outsource it, you know, um, to the television or to the babysitter or to your spouse. You take them or to nothing at all. I do not naturally want to make the sacrifices that are necessary to be a good father. And they seem like those sacrifices encroach more and more and more on my life. But if I understand this passage correctly, how I go about parenting is a reflection of how deeply the gospel has sunk into my life, into my heart. It's a reflection of whether or not I really get it. Do you really understand the gospel? But fear not, moms and dads, because this passage is a two-way street. Now's the time for you to elbow that teenager sitting next to you, all right? Not just the hearts of the fathers to their children, but the hearts of the children to their fathers. You know, your attitude to your parents is a reflection of whether or not you really believe the gospel, whether or not you really get it. Your attitude towards their rules, your attitude towards their expectations, their attitude toward you, uh, uh, the decisions that they make about how you spend your money, where you're going to live, what you're going to do, all those things that go involved in, in, in leading a family. Hmm. Uh, when you get baptized, um, as a follower of Christ in our church, you have to stand up and give a testimony and I always encourage the people who are giving their testimony, I want you to talk about how the gospel makes a difference in your life. How is your life different as a result of, of trusting in Christ? And maybe we should have a rebuttal, right, from mom and dad. Come up and, or, or, better yet, a testimony, an acclamation. I will testify that this young man's life is different because of the gospel because I see it in my house. That would be a wonderful thing. 
So if, if I were to go to your house this week, could I tell that you're a Christian by how you speak to your mom? Could, could I tell by what you say to your mom that you're a Christian? Could I tell that, 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 that the gospel's in your life by how you respond to your dad's directions by his, to his counsel? <laughs> These are really God's expectations? I mean, he really, the, who is up to this task, right? I mean, who can do this? Um, God really expects our desires, our hearts to be so realigned that they change how we respond to the people that we live closest. This does not seem possible. This is impossible to meet these requirements. And the text has some bad news for you. If you don't change, if there's no evidence that the gospel is driven deeply in your heart, you are cursed. Look, it says, verse 6, if these changes don't take place in your life, I will come and I will strike the land. You, I'm going to strike everybody with a curse. And this word translated curse here is one of the most dreadful words in the Old Testament. It means absolute destruction. It's decimation. God placed nations under a curse in the Old Testament. Nations that ignored him and disobeyed him. God said to Moses, go destroy them. I have cursed those nations. Wipe every single one of them out. This is total decimation. It's the worst thing the Old Testament can say about you. And God says, if you don't meet these requirements... I'm going to come on that day and I'm going to decimate you. That's why it's a dreadful day. And yet the passage is not completely without hope, is it? In between the ministry of the new Elijah, John the Baptist, and the dreadful day of the Lord, the the day that Jesus Christ comes back, God's Son has already been here once. He has already come. And if you read the Gospel of John, you will find in the Gospel of John a son whose heart is turned totally toward his father. And you read of a father in the Gospel of John whose heart is totally turned to his son. And in accordance with his father's plan, Jesus became a curse for us. He became a curse for us on the cross. He was cursed by his father. My actions and my desires are so far out of sync with God's that I deserve decimation. I deserve to be destroyed by God. I deserve His most ultimate, most severe judgment. But Jesus underwent that most severe judgment in my place as my substitute. And on the cross, God's justice and God's love, God's wrath and God's mercy kissed one another, the old hymn says, and Jesus was accursed. And God's intention is that you would see the sacrifice of His Son, that you would trust in Him, and seeing that sacrifice and knowing it would change you. That it would sink deep into your heart so that it would change your want-tos. Not just your actions, but your want-tos. See, in Genesis chapter 15, God appears to Abraham and he says to Abraham, Abraham, I am your great reward. I am your great reward. I am the the thing that you long for most. What it is that you want, that you think will make you happy, that you think will satisfy you. God says to Abraham, I am that. I am that for you. 
And God presents Jesus Christ to us and he says, here is a Savior who has died for you, who has loved you incredibly and has risen from the dead. He is all that you're looking for. He's the one who will satisfy you. He's the one who will fill those desires, those things that you think will make you happy. Jesus Christ is the real deal. And he demonstrated when he died on the cross for us. You know how that changes us? So all those things that I chase after that I think are going to satisfy me like a recliner in the Sunday news or, or like a second helping at the big boy buffet or uh, uh, the, the uh, sex.com online, all those things that I think are going to satisfy me that I turn from those closest to me in order to pursue. God says, Jesus is your great reward. You recognize what he did for you? and how he did it, and how significant it is, why are you chasing after that junk and ignoring the great reward that I have called you to? All those things that I ignore the, the ones that God has given me for. Malachi is, is pointing these men and women in two different directions. He wants them to look back at what God has said and forward at what God will do through his son. He's setting deep in their hearts this, this truth that God does care. He has cared. He demonstrates that He cares. He did it by sending His Son for us. Uh, he, he really foreshadows what John said, doesn't he? We love Him because He first loved us. They said, if God doesn't care about us, why should we care about Him? And Malachi argues through his book, since God does care. Since God does care, then, and you will finish that sentence with your life. Let's pray, shall we? Father, I'm grateful to you for your word that speaks so clearly to us and that reminds us of the hope that we have through um, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you, God, that you do heart work among us. It seems impossible almost for us to do the obedience work, the external good things. And, and, and again, we're reminded this morning that, that our hearts are broken, our wants are broken, our desires. Thank you that you transform us. You transform us to the glory of your Son. Father, I, I pray that not just this week, but especially this week as we contemplate uh, Christ's sacrifice for us on Friday and we remember his victory on Sunday, I, I pray that you would plant those things deep in our hearts, that we would see Jesus' death not just as payment made for our sins, but it is that gloriously so, but that we would see his death and resurrection as treasure, as reward I, I pray that you would help the sons and daughters in this room to turn from, from what they think will satisfy them to Christ and thus to the leadership of mom and dad in their house. That you would turn moms and dads away from what they think they need to the satisfaction of your son. You daily bear our burdens. Would you daily bear the burden of transforming us 
and continue your heart work among us across generations and in homes. Do that, we pray, for Christ's sake. And in his name we pray. Amen.